After three episodes and 13 years of First Avenue's history, we've arrived at the song. The song that evokes an artist, a movie, and to some, a period of mourning. Purple Rain. I'm Mark Wheat. This is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For our second season, we're exploring the history of First Avenue, the downtown Minneapolis venue that has become one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest clubs. Most casual Prince fans know that scenes from the 1984 movie Purple Rain were filmed at First Avenue. The version of Purple Rain that you hear in the movie and the soundtrack was recorded live at First Avenue, but not at the same time the movie was filmed. Just a few months before the cameras rolled, Prince hadn't yet written the song. He first performed it on August 3, 1983, at First Avenue during a benefit show for the Minnesota Dance Theatre. He had the show recorded, and when we listen to Purple Rain today, we're hearing him and the revolution play it live for the very first time. In this episode, we'll explore the story of that song and that amazingly unique one-off performance, along with Prince's relationship to Minnesota Dance Theatre, a tale that captures Prince's ethos as a musician and a community member. So far this season, guest hosts have lent their voices to each episode of Rewind. But by this point, the coronavirus pandemic has complicated our production. So we here at The Current will step in to host a few episodes, including this one, which I was quite fond of from the beginning. It takes place when I had just moved to the United States, for good, in 1983. The early 80s were a transition moment in Minnesota music. Artists from two different local scenes were breaking out. On the indie rock side, The Replacements and Hooskadoo were stirring up mosh pits all across the country, and Prince had just become a national star through the success of his fifth album, 1999. I mean, it was exciting because Prince was our local star, and, you know, he had the beginning of success before this. I mean, he did do Dirty Mind. This is David Z, Prince's longtime producer and brother of the revolution drummer Bobby Z. I mean, he wasn't a nobody, but he wasn't internationally famous at all. It was kind of a local thing. And, you know, we were all happy because we all wa- always wanted somebody from Minneapolis to make it. And before the world knew Prince's music, along with his slide, split spins and pelvic thrusts, he studied ballet with Minnesota Dance Theatre. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one. Renowned choreographer Lois Holton founded Minnesota Dance Theatre in 1962. 
they still teach classical and contemporary dance, and over the last 50 years, they've presented one of the best-attended performances of The Nutcracker in the country. In the 70s, the theatre participated in Minneapolis Public Schools' Urban Arts Program, which Prince joined as a high school student. After Lois's passing in 1995, her daughter Lisa Holton took over as artistic director. My mother and Wally Kennedy were developing this program in the Twin Cities for those of us who didn't fit in the traditional academic life. That's how my mother met Prince, through the Urban Arts Program. And I think that she saw immediately that he had a special spark, that there was something. She used to talk about the combination of this insatiable appetite and this sadness that came together uh, in some sort of combustion of energy. And I think because she had a similar, a, a similar quality that they had this common ground. You can catch the dance moves he mastered in Minnesota in some of his music videos. In the ballet world, there's a, there's a step that's challenging and that we all have to do, and it's called an entrechassis. And it's where you do three beats in the air. You jump up, you do three beats, and you land. Prince could do an entrechassis, and you learn that in a ballet class. That's not an instinctive move because you do it with turnout, which is unnatural to the human body. He did tour on layers where you jump in the air, tour on layer. He did pirouettes with excellent placement and that was combined with his jazz aesthetic and already his you know his own personal grind a few years after prince graduated minnesota dance theater needed financial help and lois decided to get back in touch as the star tribune reported at the time she found out where prince was staying in town and stood outside waiting to ask if he could do a benefit show but that was her style if she believed in somebody, if she wanted to have a connection with, with an extraordinary talent, she did that sort of thing. That was her reputation as being a little bit crazy. But I think, once again, that's where Prince and, and my mother saw their connection. Prince said yes, and First Avenue hosted the concert. Right after Prince played Little Red Corvette, his biggest hit to date, Lois Holton took the mic to thank him for his support. It was Wendy Melvoin's first time on stage with Prince and therefore the first time the Revolution's classic lineup performed together, even though they weren't billed as such. Along with Prince and Wendy, there was drummer Bobby Z, bassist Brown Mark, keyboardists Lisa Coleman and Matt Fink, a.k.a. Dr. Fink. It was also the night Prince recorded Baby I'm a Star, I Would Die For You and Purple Rain, right there at First Avenue, live. And you'll see that uh, there's not very much added or changed to the original performance, especially with the song Purple Rain. It was normal for Prince to have David record his performances, so no one expected anything unusual to happen. Nobody really knew there was a movie coming out. We just thought it was going to be a live record or whatever. And as Dr. Fink recalls, it wasn't the most comfortable environment. We all knew it was a hot, muggy summer night. And that First Avenue would be packed, and it would be very uncomfortable for older people to be standing in there. And we were right, because we were all drenched with sweat within two minutes of taking the stage, because that's how hot it was in there. The air conditioning wasn't keeping up. It was back when people smoked cigarettes in clubs. So not only did you have all that heat and humidity and bodies and cigarette smoke, but it was just um, very difficult to 
be comfortable. According to First Avenue's records, about 1,200 people bought tickets to the show. On an average night in 1983, a main room show would run about five bucks, but tickets to this benefit were $25, the equivalent of about $60 today. Including staff and an extensive guest list, about 1,500 people were in the club that night. First Avenue manager Steve McClellan was just trying not to overpack the place. I had to go and tell people, except for the really important VIP list, it's not good for you tonight, because my goal was to keep my list under 100, Prince's was supposed to be on 100, Minnesota Dance Theater was supposed to be on 100. That night, that all went blown in the wind. The guest list poured in, and that's why that night everybody says, well, why didn't you watch the show? I remember between having to get the numbers together, because I thought I would have to pay the Minnesota Dance Theater that night, so I had to get all my costs together, because it was a $25 ticket. We'd never done a $25 ticket before. And so I I knew that the money was going to be big. When we had Steve and veteran door person Richard Luca in for an interview, we asked Richard what he was up to that night. I was at the back door. Oh, you were at the back door. I, you lucked because, out. Because part of I, and I didn't know this. Um, I should you know, I could you see at the front door. I was at the front door or at the back door, and I could see everything from behind. You know, why isn't he playing anything familiar here? What the hell is this stuff? And and but then there was also this people going in and out through the garage to this truck that was out there. It yeah. turns out they were recording yeah. everything. Yeah. Nobody knew that there was going to be a movie. Within a year or so of that, none of us knew. That's why when you come back to a night like that, well, you know, it had sort of a cultural impact further down the line. But when you're in those moments, you don't know that. You know, it's, it's like, oh, this jerk just wants to get inside right now. No, you're Prince's cousin. Aren't we all? Okay, no, you can't come in. And you're, you're, we're dealing with things on an interpersonal level like that, whereas up there, they're doing this thing that's going to be here, and then it's going to go out all over the world later. I do remember hearing when doves cry the first time. There were certain times when I was able to stand and go, oh, pretty good. But, you know, life goes on. Maybe Steve and Richard didn't get to experience the full show, but Prince fan Heidi Vader couldn't tear herself away. It was so hot, so hot and so crowded. When the band played Purple Rain, the crowd didn't know what to make of it. The song seemed to go on forever. So the audience was, you know, listening. They were paying attention, but nobody was freaking out and excited. And it was nothing like the movie and nobody had all their costumes on like in the movie. (laughs) According to Dr. Fink, Prince and his band had just started practicing Purple Rain a couple of weeks before the show. Prince didn't write that one till the very end, which was more about, like about July, mid to late July of, of 83. He brought that song to the group. He hadn't finished the lyrics. He hadn't finished the melody. All he had was the chord structure. And he came to us and said, okay, let's try this. Let's just start jamming on this chord progression I've got for this song. And then we all you know, coalesced into what you hear live. And even at that live show, he improvised his guitar solo somewhat. He wasn't playing it exactly like he did it every time at rehearsal, nor was I playing my piano parts exactly the same at rehearsal that evening. It just did what it did. 
Kevin Cole, a former First Avenue DJ who now hosts the afternoon show at KEXP in Seattle, remembers there being cameras that night. At that point in time, we were experimenting with filming sessions or filming performances at the club that we would then give to the band. So there's footage floating around out there of that very first performance from a, a different perspective. One of the cameras is to the left of the stage and above the stage, looking down kind of right where Prince was playing from. And it's remarkable, but you're also seeing the audience. People are just stunned watching that song. In fact, the crowd was so quiet, David Z had to tweak the recording. When it came time for the movie, I cheated and put, I put a crowd from the Minnesota Vikings in the audience track. Because technology at the time couldn't record wireless bass well, Prince added in some bass overdubs. Heidi remembers the song being long because it was. Prince got five minutes and still ended up with a nine-minute song. David Z recorded the show in a truck from the New York-based record plant, which was considered the best in the industry at the time. Meanwhile, director Albert Magnoli was working with Prince on the early stages of a movie, which didn't have a name yet. He and Prince had gone through about a hundred songs that could go into the movie, but Magnoli felt they were still missing a piece. Interestingly enough, there was no Purple Rain in that hundred songs. During a recent trip to Minnesota, he elaborated in an interview with the current host, Jill Riley. So I went to him after I lined up what I thought was the storyline and lined up the songs. I said, we're missing the song, that catalyst after all of this journey, that song which releases you finally to become the person that you should become. And he said, OK, I got another song to write. The director came to town to scout out locations for the movie and hear new songs from the band that night. When he heard Purple Rain, he knew it was the one song he needed. Our producer, Jackie Renzetti, called him up and asked him why Purple Rain worked. Well, it had the right pacing. It had the right lyric content. Um, it had the right soulfulness and emotion. And it wasn't like anything he had done before. To me, it was a unique sounding piece. And that's what I was looking for. He obviously knew he had that song when I said we didn't have the song. So he didn't immediately say, oh, I've got a song that would fit the bill. He performed it, uh, not realizing that I would approach and then say that could be the song. And I said, what's it called? And he says, Purple Rain. And then there's a pause and he says, could we call the movie Purple Rain? And I go, yes. By the end of the night, Prince had raised $23,000 for Minnesota Dance Theater. That's the equivalent of about $60,000 today. Although Prince would go on to perform dozens of philanthropic acts, giving to music education and coding programs, buying houses for his band members, and paying medical bills for loved ones, few of them would be so public. He would give money to people and without trying to use it as a publicity, nothing. I mean, he would do charity, but in his own way of the true meaning of charity, which is not get all these uh, people recognizing you for it. He just did it and didn't want the recognition. He just wanted to do a good thing and pay it back. Our producer, Cecilia Johnson, asked the current host and Prince expert, Andrea Swenson, to put his giving in perspective. 
Prince was raised in a really pivotal time just in history um, during the civil rights movement and during the political uprising that was happening in North Minneapolis in the 1960s. His mother uh, was a social worker. He was also partly raised by Bernadette Anderson, who was a huge uh, community figure, worked at the YWCA and was just really admired um, as a leader. I mean, Prince's philanthropy goes back to the very beginning of his career. I remember his bandmates telling me stories of even on their first couple of tours, they would squeeze in shows to play at community centers or play for the deaf or do something out of their way to give back to the community. It was clearly something that Prince really valued. And that went all the way up until the end of his life when he was funding projects like Yes, We Code and sending money to Baltimore and honoring Freddie Gray and his music. And he just had that spirit in him. Um, I think it really goes back to, you know, coming up in North Minneapolis and being so involved in the community there and being raised by community leaders like Bernadette Anderson and like his mother, Maddie Shaw. It was just part of who he was. So what else was going on in the early 80s when Prince was starting to have this huge rise um, in terms of philanthropy or giving or like, yeah, celebrity? Yeah, well, there's We Are the World, which, um, you know, was a huge moment culturally as all of these stars came together to record this song. Um, There was Live Aid. You know, U2 coming up, um, that was something that they really preached. And I think it just became part of the, like, pop music culture that in order to be, like, a a good citizen, that if you were successful, that you should use some of your power and your money to give back. Um, But also, Prince was very um, discreet about his generosity. He did not do it for his own, you know, name or reputation or personal brand. It was just something that he valued. And uh, especially later on, you know, as he became uh, more religious, um, explicitly with converting to Jehovah's Witness, it was a huge part of his faith as well, that that was not something that you were supposed to advertise. That's not why you give. You do it because it's important and because you value it. We might not ever really know who all Prince helped but we know he donated to a lot of programs centered on youth and community. At the Circle of Discipline in South Minneapolis, Sankara Fraser wrote a letter to Prince asking for funding to help keep his community boxing program going. Prince ended up making multiple contributions over the years. Our producer Jackie visited Circle of Discipline to ask how Sankara felt when he got the checks. I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised. Prince helped a lot of people. He saw what we were doing, you know, with all of the young people and the older people. You know, we have the community comes in here. And he saw what we were doing community-wise. We pulled a lot of people together, people that wouldn't be together. You know, this right here, boxing, was something that they grew up around. He didn't box, but as far as I know, he didn't box. But he, they know the importance and how it develops, you know, a lot of the youth into to, to better people. We're the cause. We're working with the, with the community. Sankara was part of Prince's community from a young age. As kids, he lived with Prince and André Simon, one of Prince's best friends and earliest bandmates. Speaking with Jackie, Sankara used the phrase behind the scenes to describe Prince as a community member. But although his actions may have been discreet, they were full of love for his cities. Oh, Prince, he was down from Minneapolis. 
He's down. All of the people that, that, that had opportunities and stuff that, that were with him, they got him here. You know, so he decided to put this on the map. That's why, you know, even making Purple Rain, he was putting Minnesota on the map. Yeah, I'll give him credit for that. Talisa, Prince's support of Minnesota Dance Theatre, has been about more than just the money. He's continuing to have an impact on Minnesota Dance Theatre because every time this subject is brought up, Minnesota Dance Theatre is right there in the story. And once again, for me, having been so surprised with this event that happened in the 80s when I was far away, to feel those repercussions still is such a gift. His legacy continues to inspire community work, especially among his longtime fans. Heidi Vader, who saw the August 83 show, told Cecilia that she sensed a vacuum in the fan community after Prince's death. She wanted to unite people behind something healing. So in 2017, she started a music education program called Purple Playground. Each summer, Purple Playground runs a two-week music camp where young students write their own music and record it. They also hear from guest speakers about Prince's legacy and what it's like to be a professional musician. They um, write like five or eight songs and then we record them and we put them out in there on our website and we ended up with these inspiring um, songs about supporting each other and um, loving yourself and believing in yourself and all this stuff. That's what we were hoping, but it, it we didn't know what would happen, you know. They come in, these kids who, a couple of them knew each other, but a lot of them don't know each other. And then they're immediately, like, within an hour, they're like, let's do this, blah, blah, back and forth. And um, so it, some of the songs will make you cry. And there you have it, Mark Wheat's final contribution to The Current and The Current Rewind. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Mark Wheat. It was produced by me, Cecilia Johnson, and Jackie Renzetti. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant, and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is Hive Sound by Icetap. This episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans. Thanks to Brett Baldwin, Rick Carlson, Shelby Sachs, and David Safar for additional support. If you like this episode, check out the series Prince Official Podcast, which is produced by The Current and The Prince Estate. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and beyond. We work really hard on all these music history podcasts, and if you'd like to give back or say thanks, we'd really appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts or a donation via support.mpr.org. If you have any comments or stories you'd like to share directly with us, send them to rewind at thecurrent.org. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.